the connotation of singular in our mind or one is a numerical statement. Yeah. Well, anyone who's listened to this for any time knows that I even don't like Christianity defined as monotheistic because I don't think it is. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. Last week, you heard part one of Daniel and I's discussion on the Old Testament canon, reacting to Tim Mackey's talk, The Making of the Bible. This week, we have part two of that discussion. We round out Mackey's part on the Old Testament here, talking about some of the textual strains we have for the Old Testament, being the Masoretic, the Septuagint, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and how we should not be scared of the differences that occur between these strains, most of them being inconsequential some of them being a bit more serious, but we can make multivalent and complex arguments for why we could prefer one textual strain over the other. And then I bring in a, a short video by Michael Heiser about where he talks about one of these more important theological differences in Deuteronomy 32 between the Masoretic text and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he makes a multi-layered case about why he prefers the Dead Sea Scroll translation over the Masoretic, in which I agree. And I try and summarize that and make it make it a little bit more digestible and understandable. In doing that, I hope to not scare any of you for those that say that we have these major differences and so we can't know which one is right. We can definitely know which one is right and true and therefore defend the authority of the Bible. From this conversation, me and Daniel move on to talk about how a lot of these translations are made with theology in mind, and we go through an exercise he did for one of his classes on the Shema, also from Deuteronomy, and how different English translations make certain decisions to bring out certain things in the text. I hope this is helpful for you guys in showing that it is important to read multiple translations to be aware of what decisions are being made in terms of certain translations. And sometimes translation committees or people that make individual translations like Interate or John Golden Gate are very upfront about why they make certain decisions over another. So I hope that that portion is very practical for you guys and helps you be able to look at and gives you some vision for some of these things. Next week, we will go on to talk about the canonization of the New Testament, reacting to the second portion of Mackey's talk here on that subject. As always, thank you guys very much for listening. You can rate, review, subscribe if you like what we're doing here. Leave us a comment. Tell us what you think. You can email me at belfastpodcast.gmail.com, and we will see you in the next one. Thank you very much. We're going to finish out. This will be our last section. It might be a little bit longer than the others, though. Let me know if you want me to stop it. This is going to be on um, textual um, variance and um, what's the what's the term? Um, textual criticism. Manuscript history, textual criticism. Yeah. yeah. I. 
That's a very reasonable, honest conclusion to draw about the nature of the scriptures. And you can disagree with it, but if you're going to disagree with it, you should have other evidence, right, that points in a different direction. And of course, scholars debate about this, and I'll give you lot, uh, some recommended reading at the end. But this is a historical, defensible position. It's held by many scholars in the field, um, and it's definitely not the Da Vinci Code story. Are you with me? Okay. Part two. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, no, we're just gonna go, we're just gonna go. Okay, all right, all right. Really? No, I, I'm really, I'm supposed to, I, okay, okay, real quick, real quick. <laughs> all right, so uh, how do we know that that unified Hebrew Bible, so you've got a, maybe if you've got a Bible sitting in your lap right now, it's the English translation of the Bible, and you know, how, what's, how did you get from that two to three hundreds BC collection of the Tanakh to the books that are translated into English in your Bible. And in a very brief nutshell that doesn't do justice to how wonderful and exciting this, this section of biblical studies is, uh, there's three main bodies of textual evidence. There's actually more, but these are the three most significant ones about the text, the wording of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the first is a set of medieval manuscripts that come from the period you see there. They're called the Masoretic Texts. Um, and so this is a body of text spanning 600 years, which is itself a pretty long period of time. And within this body of text, these guys were such introverts. <laughs> like they just, like I, could, they had no life other than uh, this was a trained professional skill within uh, the tradition of, of people who became rabbis, and they were absolutely brilliant. And so these, these manuscripts come with not only the biblical text, but they come with all kinds of notes and references. The, the resolution of the picture is, isn't that great, but can you see there's three columns there? That's from Jonah chapter one. And can you see there's some stuff on the top and the bottom? Can you see that there's kind of something on the side? I know it's hard to see in this image right here. In a, in a better resolution, just Google Masoretic text and you'll see a picture for yourself. And this is all, these are all Bible nerd notes right here on the sides and on the bottom. And they are, there's little symbols connected to words in the text. So you're reading along and you see a little symbol. Oh, and it takes you, it's like a little footnote. And it'll say, hey, dear scribe, you know this, see that word? It's spelled kind of funny. Do you know that word occurs three times in the entire Hebrew Bible? Here's the references right here. Don't misspell it right here. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then it goes on. And it's all like super, super detailed about words that are odd. So don't miss, but it's all about, it's all about preserving the, this text. So this was the main uh, format, textual witnesses that we had, along with uh, Greek translations that were made, you know, we're talking like some 800 years or more before the Masoretic text. This was produced by a, a group of uh, Jewish communities down in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And so that's a very uh, significant uh, witness to the text of the Hebrew Bible. But then the Dead Sea Scrolls show up and now we're talking. Because now we can look at the same book of the Bible from 1200 AD or 600 AD, and then time warp back 600, 800 years and look at the gap and compare these texts. And it's, abs it's so amazing and remarkable, this field of biblical studies. Um, it's where I focused on my, my research for my dissertation with the book of Ezekiel. And the first, the most important takeaway is that the text of the Hebrew Bible over this period, you know, this test sample period of a thousand years, it's remarkable how these texts have been accurately preserved. It's absolutely remarkable. 
Are there differences between these witnesses? Oh, yes. Oh, totally. Yeah, and that shouldn't bother you one bit. <laughs> it shouldn't bother you one bit. In fact, I think it's, that's the most fascinating and interesting thing about all of this. Most of them are inconsequential. They're scribal errors, because, dude, if you had a written text in front of you and you're doing this, you know, six hours a day, you're going to make some, some mistakes. And, and this is your mind melted by TV and Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Like, imagine these are like people who are actually smart and use all of their brains who are trained to do this, right? <laughs> and, but even they're going to make mistakes. You know what I'm saying? So, but some of the differences are significant. Some of the differences actually peek us back into edition one, edition two, like the book of Jeremiah. We actually get a window through the Dead Sea Scrolls into that final period of the formation and uh, the crystallization of the text of the Hebrew Bible, and it's so interesting and fascinating. What's great is that we, it's, we don't have, it's not the case that like some part of the Bible was lost. We actually have too much of the Bible. This is like thousands of manuscripts, right? And so we, imagine a boulder thrown into a pond. Ripple effects go everywhere. And so we have text from over here, we have text from right in here, and here, and here, and here, and here. So any difference or error that happens here, well, we can just look over here. Oh, yeah, so that's clearly an error. This is definitely the right one here. And so Bible nerds through the centuries um, have been culminating in this. Here it is right here. Every English translation of the Old Testament that you've seen in the modern world comes from one source, and you're looking at it right here. It's called the Biblia Hebraica Quinta. Uh, it used to be called the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, but now it's called the Biblia Hebraica Quinta. And so you see this book of Ruth, there it is, Hebrew text of the book of Ruth. And all under there is decades and decades and decades of scholars looking through all of these ancient text witnesses, compiling all of the differences right there, so that we can, with a high, high degree of confidence, know what uh, the text of the Hebrew Bible says. Are there places that are puzzles and mystery and things to be solved? Absolutely. That's why you would become a biblical scholar, because you love that kind of stuff. But can we, with a high degree of confidence, know that the Bibles that we have come from that unified Hebrew Bible from the third century BCE? I think it is, it's not just more than reasonable. You need to have exceedingly good reasons to not think that. How you doing? I was going to skip that, <laughs> so maybe I should do that. Okay, all right, here we go. All right. And that, I think, beautifully encapsulates an accurate look at manuscript history and the scandal of it in heavy air quotes. Thoughts? I've got several, but... So, um, um, you go first. Okay. So we have, like you said, too many, we have too much of the Bible, too many manuscripts, right? so many that we can see where, thing, where things might have branched off in two different directions, right? Um, which allows for us to have a high degree of confidence in what the quote unquote original was, right? 
we can make good, well-informed arguments about the texts as they existed before the texts that we have and why or why not we think it's this or that, right? Um, we use different texts to double check the others. Uh, with the Masoretic text that he was talking about, those scribes were very careful, so careful that we have their notes about, hey, this looks like a misspelled word. This um, looks like um, a word that could be easily misspelled. So make sure you pay close attention to it. And here are some references for where it also pops up. Variants exist. We know this. And we can know what they are, why the differences might matter, why they might not matter, and how to handle them responsibly. Right? We can handle them responsibly. And that is the, um, the, the important thing to consider. Um, the, the, the Quinta that he was referring to, I have a Stuttgartensia because the Quinta is not exactly done yet. They don't have all of it, but I've got the Stuttgartensia. And when we were talking about my translation of Jonah episodes way, way back, right? I used the Stuttgartensia to form the basis of my translation. Because that text is using all of the information that we have to inform what we think is the most accurate representation of the text. And it's so well informed that there are very complicated arguments that we can make for why one variant versus another. And yeah, there's a, there can be disagreement there. Almost none of them have super weighty theological significance. And the ones that do, I mean, like I said, we, we can make arguments about why one and not the other in an informed fashion. We're not just pulling this out of thin air. And that's the argument that a lot of people try to make about using textual variants, right? We're just pulling the stuff out of thin air. No, we're not. We're pulling this out of the dirt. And we have a lot of stuff we pulled out of the dirt. So this thing you texted me, did you want me to pull it up? Sure. Yeah. Could you um, email it to me? That might be easier for me to access. Oh, can you not get it on your laptop? Um, yeah, I don't have text set up on my laptop. Okay. For, just for, I didn't want my texts to be going off in class. Sorry. No, you're good. I figured you did, but. Yeah, that's fair. Most people get annoyed when I tell them I haven't. So I guess I'll add another one to that list. And while you're doing that, I'll ask, um, you remember my um, exercise that I suggested we do at some point about different translations? Yeah. If we have time, I could go ahead and pull that document up too. And we can walk through that briefly. I think this example is a good one for a, a way to wade through a important theological disagreement in certain texts. Okay. 
What um, what timestamp? Just start it. Uh, 27, 28 seconds in. Um, I don't have a specific timestamp other than that. We can watch okay. as much of it as is necessary. Cool. Everything coming through clear? Yeah. This is ESV, and it says this. When the Most High gave to their nations their inheritance. Okay, so, you know, what does that sound like? The Most High gave to their nations their inheritance. When he divided mankind, okay, and he fixed the borders of the peoples. All right, now I know what's being alluded to. It's Genesis 11, 1 through 9. This is when God divides up humanity. Up to that point, humanity was one, you know, one and mass entity. And at Babel, it gets divided, they get scattered, and you know, God confuses the languages, and they, they, be, they become different nations. And those nations are listed for us in the, in the chapter prior to Genesis 11, Genesis 10. That's why it's called the table of nations. It's a list of nations. So when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, Pause. Okay, divvies them all up, he divides Just for context for the discussion that's happening right now, he's talking about, he just read from Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. I like to read from 7 just because it gives more context for the passage. But anyway, um, his... And why he's making all these allusions to Babel is because in his interpretation, this is what he sees going on in the mind or intention of the author as being the illusion in the passage in Deuteronomy. And that is going to affect why he prefers a um, Desi Scrolls text over a Masoretic text as far as sources are concerned. So that's what's happening here. Yeah. Um, well, and as soon as I saw what we pulled up, I immediately knew what, what this was. And yeah, it's, it's a great example. So. Divides mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion Okay, the Lord's portion, God's own portion, is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, this is Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. It is a reference back to the Babel event. What happens right after the Babel event when God divides up the nations? He calls Abraham, Abram, and he creates for himself a new people and a new nation. They become his heritage. So Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 very plainly refer back to the Tower of Babel episode. The question is, a lot of your translations, let's just go back, do not say this. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Well, my translation doesn't say that, and it might not. Let's take a look at a few. Okay, this is ESV. Let's just put a stopping point here at verse 8. And let's take a look at a few. Let's go look at King James. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. 
Well, you know, you, you know, Israel doesn't exist yet. Israel's not in existence when the nations are divided. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Let's take a look at another one. I mean, just, just random, just see what, what versions have. The Tanakh, this is the Jewish Publication Society. Yep, you fix the borders of the peoples in relation to Israel's numbers. Okay, children of Israel. Little elastic translation there. NIV, let's see what that has. According to the number of the sons of Israel, Little footnote there, let's see what it says. Masoretic text, that's what the Masoretic text has. The Dead Sea Scrolls though, they say, says sons of God and also the Septuagint. Okay, let's do one more. Uh, New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. According to the number of the gods. Okay, so they're, they're taking sons of God and pluralizing it, the number of the gods. Okay, let's... And it has the Masoretic text, you, you would say the Israelites. Okay. So you get you know, a, a good bit of difference there and you say, well, why the difference? Why the difference? Why does the ESV have this and other, these other translations have what they have? Well, most of your English translations, at least kind of the older ones that have a little mileage on them, are going to have sons of Israel or a translation based on sons of Israel because that's what the traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text has. And that's typically, you know, and, and the ESV is really no different. That, that, that's the text that's used to create an English translation. But what the ESV team did was they made the decision, you know what? Everybody here knows that the Dead Sea Scrolls sons of God here is the right reading. So let's put it in. We'll put a footnote in there as to why our translation says sons of God, but we are going with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the oldest witness to this verse that is known to exist. And so they just did that. And this isn't the only place they do it. They do it in other places too, which is why I, I kind of, I, I like the ESV for, Deuteronomy 32, except for verse 17, it's, it's, a, it's a terrible translation. I did a whole peer-reviewed article on why the ESV is wrong in Deuteronomy 32, 17. But it's, it's, just, it's bad. It's, it's self, it produces a self-contradiction in the chapter, which is why it's bad. But anyway, sons of God or sons of Israel. Again, on the left-hand column here, you have what the Dead Sea Scrolls have, you know, at the bottom, here's number 14. From right to left is B'nai Elohim, sons of God. And just so that you know, I'm not drawing it. Here is a decent photograph of the fragment of Deuteronomy 32.8 from the Dead Sea Scrolls. B'nai Elohim, and we'll click again. Here's, here's a high resolution photograph of the fragment from the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls website. Uh, you can actually get high-resolution photos of the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it, you know, from, from where they're kept in Israel. So we have B'nai Elohim. Okay, it's, it's, it, it couldn't be any clearer. And again, you had to read my article for today, I think. I don't know if I put it in the optional reading or not, but probably not. So what, what we have going on here Pause. is we have a, a text. Okay, so... Just to summarize why he makes, 
he makes this distinction and this decision for two big reasons. One, because logically, the reading Sons of God makes the most sense within the passage of Deuteronomy and the illusions that it is making. Because as he pointed out, if you're going to translate it Sons of Israel, well, you have two major problems. You're saying that all the nations were divided up according to the Sons of Israel? So are there 12 nations? Well, no, there's a lot more. There's 70 or 72, depending on how you split some one of them up, in the table of nations in Genesis 10. So there's at least that many. Um, now, there's other arguments for that about um, Moses and the 70, but different, different context. Um, the, but you also have allusions to this in the New Testament, right? When Jesus sends out the disciples and gives them power over demonic forces, by the way, how many does he send out? Well, 70 or 72. Yeah, exactly. And I think the greater point for that, regardless of how you take the table of nations or Moses and the elders, well, if this verse is truly referring to Babel, and just so I can have it, I'm going to read verse 7, which is why I always include it when I talk about this passage. I'll read from the ESV to keep things the same. Verse 7, remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, ask your father, he will show you your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted heritage. Okay. Also, uh, it's about verse 9. But the Lord's portion, his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Well, if all the... Again, we get this kind of language in the New Testament, but as far as the Old Testament theological conception is concerned, who are the people of God? Israel. Israel, yeah. But if all the nations are divided according to the number of the sons of Israel, aren't all the nations God's people then? What makes Israel special? Nothing. Fundamentally. No, what makes Israel special is uh, we had this conversation the first time we ever talked. Because I always pose the question, why is the shift from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12 important? God's going to raise up a new nation through Abraham. Why Why is that significant if all the nations are already his? Well, the point of Deuteronomy 32 is that they're not in Psalm 82. So there's greater logical and theological damage and malpractice, let's say, that gets done if you go with the Masoretic text. And I just think it has logical issues with, if it's truly an allusion to Babel, there's no way it can be talking about, um, let's say decentralization as according to Israel. Because then I think the rest of what's going on doesn't make sense. And then you have later allusions to 
in Deuteronomy, which we've also had this discussion in Deuteronomy earlier in Deuteronomy in 14 and 17 about not worshiping other gods because that's the allotment of other nations. So then as you talk about, as we talk about construction formation, right? As he even alludes to it creates later, there's a self-contradictions created, which is my, why something's a bad translation. And I would say something's a bad interpretation. If the way you interpret one passage undoes what has already been built up in the previous part of the book, right? Mm-hmm. That would be a bad writer or a bad compiler. It'd be a bad interpretation. So for all those reasons, for logical reasons, for theological reasons, you can oppose, let's say, the Masoretic text of this passage. And so that's one, those are like two reasons that are intertwined about why he's doing this. The other reason is in, in very basic ways, it's the most original because from what we know so far, the Dead Sea Scrolls are the earliest things we've found as of Old Testament text. So with that, he's saying, well, this is what came first. So obviously it got changed later for whatever reason. And so I'm going to go with the original intent, let's say. Yeah, so that's exactly what do you think? What, agree, disagree? Oh, I totally agree. I think that's exactly what Mackey's talking about when he says that we can make very well-informed, confident decisions about which text to go through. And this is also his point that there's still work to be done, right? And we have a theological misconception based on a bad translation in most situations, and a good translation in the ESV can help fix that, right? That's not to say that we're so far off the mark that we're interpreting things backwards, which is the claim that most um, critics and pessimists would like Mm -hmm. to say, right? The whole reason we're able to have this conversation is because we have so much authentically well done groundwork underneath the conversation itself, right? Mm -hmm. And so we have enough of that groundwork laid, but when it comes to specific little instances like this, that then have trickle effects into other passages too, Mm -hmm. right? Because everything's connected. Um, It it helps further our body of knowledge about the Bible, biblical history, textual manuscript history and tradition even more than previously done. And so this is exactly what Mackey was talking about, exactly what I highlighted about. We can make very well-educated decisions. And... We're not just pulling it out of thin air. We're not just pulling it out of thin air. Because as I gave you, there's a handful, literally, of reasons to go with one translation over the other in this instance. This is one instance. But you can make a solid argument in a very short amount of time about why one is to be preferred over the other. Yeah. Yeah. Largely doing with consistency and narrative. Consistency, narrative, language. Um, case of the words. I mean, there are all sorts of different ways that these things can inform each other. Um, And another thing, so I don't know, how much more do you have on that specific point? I mean, it's pretty much been made. I don't remember if he says anything other, anything else that's uh, foundational to the argument. Yeah. But I just wanted to use that as an example of, there are actual theological things at stake here. But 
the reasons for going with one over the other are usually quite clear and can be made multifacetedly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, that's another thing he does is he makes that argument, not just using one approach, but he approaches the same, makes the same point from several different positions and shows why one translation and one text as a foundation text is more important than the other. And here is a, um, again, one of our first conversations that we ever had was about translation and, mm -hmm. and different things in translation. So I'll tr tr uh, transition to my, my translation document. Let me share that real quick. Um, did that come up okay? Yeah. The Word document? Okay. So um, this is a bunch of my trans or a bunch of different translations of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which is the start of Shema, um, which Jesus quotes um, as being the greatest commandment in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Um, so this is an exercise that we did in my Greek class, and I redid the exercise with a different text in Hebrew. So what I did was I looked at, and this right here is the Stukartensia. This, this is, well, it's Hebrew, so it's backwards. Okay, it's not going to highlight everything. That's the Stuttgartensia, mm -hmm. um, which is before the Quinta. It's the Quinta is still being refined and fully published and things like that. So it is the Stuttgartensia is the uh, I want to say late last century best, most well informed text we have of compiling all of the sources in an informed way and then citing all of the differences that exist within the texts, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a compilation of our most well-informed information, and I'm incorporating the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that, right? <clears throat> That's what this is. This is my translation. I said, heed, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord singular, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and in parentheses, I wrote will, and with all of your life essence, and in parentheses, I wrote desire, and with all of your very, and in parentheses, I wrote intensity. That's my interpretation, my translation of this text, right? So if we scroll down, and okay, so right here, um, we've got some words says, when working with a translation, first ask yourself what they got right, the translators. Only then should you move on to what you think they got wrong. Now, my, my Greek professor made this statement to us because he's basically saying to us, be humble when reading other people's translations and realize that they are making informed decisions as well. And just because you disagree with the way they translated. And the reason I want us to go through this, this exercise of translation is because translation is another step removed in this process, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the text being written, the text being compiled, the text being edited and, and shaped into a cohesive structure. For the then, most part, all in the same language. All in the same language. For the language. most part. Yes. Yeah. Most of the time. Then you have the text being transmitted throughout history and then at different points in time you have the text being translated into different languages different times and different places again time and place 
this is what I think best represents this translation right here. My translation is what I think best represents what this is saying in our time and place mm -hmm. based on my knowledge of what this is saying and their time and place, right? The King James Version disagrees with me. It says, hear, O Israel. Now, I said heed because the term Shema, this word right here, this first word, means to listen, to hear, or obey. And I think heed renders that most cohesively, right? If you heed something, you don't just hear it, you don't listen to it, you also do something with what you're, you're hearing, right? Mm -hmm. The traditional English translation is here, and it is fine right? It's no big deal. It's got an oh, element of that. Yeah, it's got an element of that. And it's the way most people translate it. As we'll see, most people go here. In fact, very few people do anything different than here in English. Oh, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is the, the um, yeah, God is one. The Lord, our God is one. They do something very different than most translations do with, with that phrase. It's Adonai or Yahweh, Elohinu, Yahweh Echad. Echad is one, it literally means one. Yahweh is obviously God, we usually say Lord, and Elohinu is our God. It's literally the preposition our um, suffixed to the word for God. So it literally reads, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh, one. But they think that it means the Lord, our God, is one. Because sometimes you can insert a verb based on the grammatical structure and things like that. Lots of complicated rules. And you shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul and with all thine might. Right? They render it a little differently than I do, especially this last part right here soul life essence kind of a similar thing i think it's trying mm -hmm. to get at desire personally i think heart mind levav is trying to get at the will a person brings forth um so you bend your will towards god you bend your desire towards god and you do that with your intensity you do that with everything that you have you you intensely go after it right they think might best represents that which is again a fine way it's, it takes a skim off the top i think of what the hebrew the depth of the hebrew it's it's a skim of it in english but it's it's a fine skim right hero israel the lord our god the lord alone so they don't say one they say alone i said singular right the word is literally one like that's the number one for hebrew mm -hmm. but what is what are they trying to communicate with that word one I think it's something about his singularity, his solitudeness, his, he is the, the one divine being, right? They say alone. I think alone is a fine translation. I say the first part of Shema every night before bed, and I actually say alone. I don't say singular. That was actually a more, a more recent translation of mine, but I've gotten to the habit of saying alone. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They do something very similar to the King James. But right, they're both dealing with versions of this, and they come away with slightly different things. 
right? We can see that. Any comments so far? I would just say, linking to our the previous example in Deuteronomy 32, I like the wording of alone more than I yeah. like one yeah. or singular. Yeah. Not because, and here here we get to right the 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 method or the purpose of in, of translation. Again, you also have a very hard time dealing with why bother if you're a pure structuralist postmodern thinker in terms of language why you would want to translate something accurately is not even a question you should ask which is why i'm not a structuralist and why i don't like Saussure. but this is another conversation uh, i actually despise what he says about language because i think it's actually just incorrect um we can talk about that at some other point. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, there's nothing, you know, you, you know more or less about it, but there's nothing arbitrary going on here, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but I, I like, because of what, and this back to our, um, so linking with that and our divine accommodation conversation, the connotation of singular in our mind or one is a numerical statement. Yeah. Well, anyone who's listened to this for any time knows that I even don't like Christianity defined as monotheistic because I don't think it is yeah. or Judaism for that matter. So then to in the Shema, in the, and I and I keep re re thinking about a reference I heard earlier, but someone talking about the Shema, and they were, they said something to the effect that the the notion of the Lord our God is one is not one of num is not one of a numerical value, because again you also have trouble. The classic argument is about this and the Trinity. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As well. Yeah. yeah. So, well, and and that's actually why I chose singular versus one. Okay. Explain. Or, so, so my explanation for that uh, is. Sorry, I'm going to yeah, cut you yeah, off yeah, and yeah, steal no, it back no. for a second. Yeah. Go. Because I just want to finish my statement yeah, about that. Please. Because singular and one in our heads denote numerical numerical entity or value. Yeah. Um, or quantity, let's say, is a better word. Whereas I think that at least in the mind of the Old Testament authors and the early church and much of Paul's writings, we're dealing with a panoply of gods, created beings, spiritual beings, all these words we use, hosts of heaven, right? Yeah. The stars. Uh, I wish you knew more um, Tolkien so I could make those references. Um, and so I, I think God, the Lord our God is is God alone denotes better. I, I believe what is intended in the Shema is the reminder again, dealing with this is Deuteronomy dude. Mm -hmm. Right. And we've yeah. been talking about that. Yeah. That's the, what's allotted to the other nations. Yep. But the point and all those warnings, the point in the first and second commandment is that 
they're not yours. The yeah. Lord, your God. Yeah. The Lord alone. is alone. Alone. He's yours alone. So that yeah. that would be my reason, my theological reasoning yeah. for preferring one over the other, not yeah. because of, again, not because of what the Hebrew literally says, because if you went like you did, literally with what it says, it can denote something that it might not actually mean. Yeah, well, and I didn't go literally, I didn't go literally, right? I, I did singular and not one, uh-huh. because some translations, and you, you can go one. I think the King James, let me, yeah. let me share it again. Yeah, the and, both um, both of the first two, I think you read, were one. Um, yeah, so the Lord our God is one Lord, mm-hmm. and then the NRSV is the Lord our God alone. And I wrote the Lord singular. The reason yeah. I did singular was because I was trying to see, this is where, again, because of this number one and the Trinitarian theology and things like that, the Jewish community really likes to harp on one, 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 right? Um, because they want to be anti-Trinitarian. Um, the Christian community likes to, tends to like to see what else we can do with it. And so I was trying to kind of extend an, an olive branch, a shoot of Jesse um, to, to them in my translation. And because there's some vagary there, right? I, I would agree with you alone, like I said, in my own personal, when I'm saying this, I think alone is probably what's being communicated most accurately. I wanted to carry forward a bit of that vagueness. And I also think you made a good point that numbers in like, they, they don't have a numeral for one. That is the number one, a word, Right. So when they're thinking about numbers, they're not writing down equations and thinking mathematically, numerically like that as much. You know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's much more of a conceptual, even qualitative idea than a quantitative idea. Um, so yeah, I, I, would, I would concede alone to you 100 percent um any more thoughts on that before i go to amplified just my one thought would be we are we are so empiricist and mathematical in the west not for bad reasons but even in common let's say common parlance or in general culture we don't have such a direct relationship with numbers either and the the only examples that really came to mind although i could probably think of more if i sat down long enough would be um sports figures so if i said 23 what pops in your head Uh, honestly, nothing at the moment. If I'm being honest, okay. What What were you going for? I was going for Michael Jordan. See, I had, I had a thought that that might have been what you were going for, but I wasn't sure. I, yeah. I, I my mind went more like modern 
like current contemporary sports. Or LeBron like James. That. Yeah. So I was I was thinking. But I wasn't why? Sure why which was there? We were going. Okay. Yeah. But sure. Okay. Even at that. Yeah. It's a good example because when James moved to to Miami, he changed his number. Why? Because he had always been in LeBron's shadow or in Jordan's shadow. Yeah. He was 23. That was the big discussion. This is a discussion we all still have. Who's the greatest player? Is it Michael or is it LeBron? And I think in a very real way, LeBron James wanted to get that off his back. Yeah. Pun intended. Yeah. And be a different number in Miami than he ever was in Cleveland. So, yeah, the number 23 has numerical value. But to anyone who's any level of a basketball fan in the world, 23 isn't just a number. Yeah. So, like you were saying, and I make that allusion to say, yes, and in the Jewish mind, there's a lot of pictures that go with certain numbers. Yeah. Right. Why does creation happen over seven days? Because seven is the number for completeness. Six. Why does man get created on the sixth day? Because man, well, is almost the culmination of completeness, but also man is six. This is why the number 666 has a lot to do with humanity being the pinnacle of the equation let's say which is important for our current world Peugeot has a great video on the symbolism of 666 which is fantastic um so yeah five the books of torah yeah so i mean we yeah I just make that point to say, even in our modern world where we do calculations so much and our mind goes there, like I said earlier, with numerical values, it's not always that straightforward, even for us. <coughs> and if you get literary repetitions, right, you, you have to bring up um, Lord of the Rings. You have three characters that are different dimensions for God or Jesus. Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. Yeah. So you can continue, but I just want to make that point. Yeah. No. Even in our current world, those the relationship isn't as direct maybe as we would like it. We still impute meaning onto numbers all the time. We're just obsessed with them in a different way than the Israelites would have been. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a beautiful point to make. Um, Okay. So back to the translations, we have amplified. You're going to hate this. Um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then in 
brackets, the only God. Um, and again, you see what they do there is they don't just, now they bracket it. So I'll give them some respect for that, right? Yeah, but they, they they're imputing it, theology. But they're uh, bringing their theology into the translation. In their in, in their translation, they are directly imputing a certain interpretation. Yeah, and so they bracket it. Good credit to the scholars who to the scholars who did the amplified. But they think that one means the only God and not alone, solitary, singular something like that um, set apart for Israel in some way, which is more what you would theologically espouse. Yeah. And to this point as well, I just thought about this analogy here back to our conceptions of, and something like divine marriage. Bethany is your wife, your only wife. Doesn't mean she's the only woman. But you have a certain relationship with her that is covenantal. Yeah. That absolutely. is particular that you don't share with anybody else. And that's the point of the Shema. Yeah. Yeah. It defines the relationship. Exactly. It's it's a relational covenant. Um, and I yeah, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful example. Um, okay, so you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind. And notice this, right? In my translation, I said heart, mind, heart dash mind. I did that to convey that it's the same word. They have their and in italics to convey that and doesn't exist in the text, but that the same word is conveying both ideas simultaneously. So I actually love that in the Amplified. That's a really, really good translation. In fact, if I ever write this up again, I might do that very thing because I think that's that's clever. This heart mind doesn't really read well, right? With all your soul and with all your strength. So something similar to the NRSV and the I KJV. do like that bracket, your entire being. Your entire being, which is what what I'm trying to get at with well, I, I'm trying to kind of get at that with both will, desire, and then intensity, right? And what, what I personally, my translation, my interpretation bring forward is heart, mind, is your will, what you're bringing forth from you, your desires, the things that you want, and then your intensity is the means by which you're willing to go, like how far you're willing to extend yourself to make that will and those desires a reality, right? That's what I think Shema is communicating. And yeah, so their bracket here, their bracket up here was awful, right? According to your interpretation, the only God yeah. and, and my interpretation too. Your entire being, I think, actually encompasses the entirety of what Shema is really trying to get at, mm -hmm. right? So yeah, I think that bracket's brilliant. The message. Attention, Israel. Now you could look at that. I actually don't wow, mind that's that. Very different from hear or heed. I actually think that's really clever. I I actually really like the message in that section. I think that's really unique and a good way of getting across the idea. Pay attention. 
And that kind of implies some need to, for response or like internalizing and then action afterwards too, right? Attention, Israel. God, our God. God, the one and only. Uh, I don't like that quite as much. I do think the way that they're breaking, I mean, they repeat God. They're, they're saying God as though it's Yahweh. They're not making a distinction between Yahweh and Elohinu, which is our God. So I don't really even, like what they're doing with that. But And even that, I'm not crying. I'm sorry. I'm just. No, you're good. I don't know. The message translation is just so beautiful. I know. It's just getting to me, man. Um, but even the Yahweh, our God is an interesting parenthetical mm-hmm. right yeah and in my estimation implying what there's other gods for yeah. other nations and, our god and, and our god is yahweh yeah yeah exactly um the one and only and you could even in parentheses after that according to your translation say um the one and only for us mm-hmm. right love god your god which i don't love again they're translating yahweh and elohim the same which is weird to me but whatever love god your god with your whole heart so with all your heart yeah that's what it's kind of getting at love him so they're not repeating it again which i think kind of ruins the rhythm of the saying personally Um, that might be more stylistic you could say than theological but Mm -hmm. i think the style is important as well so love him with all that's in you Okay, so love him with your whole heart, love him with your nefesh, your soul, your desire, all that's in you. I think that's unique and quite clever. And love him with all you've got. Actually, that's not bad. Yeah. That's surprisingly not bad, right? Again, I translate it differently because I think it can be rendered differently more easily in English, but. That's quite good in most situations. And then the Living Bible translation, which I think is the one that I have the most qualms with. Oh, Israel, listen. They're the only one to translate it, listen. Again, I mean, if you look up Shema in a lexicon, listen is one of the main definitions. Yeah, it's an option. And it's not a bad one. I don't think it quite gets to, I mean, listen might be a bit more intense than hear. So I could like it for that reason. Um, I think heed or attention, something like that is a bit better because it's implying some kind of responsible action taken on what's been digested audibly, right? Jehovah. Oh God, right? Jehovah. Um, Why do you scoff at that? Because... That's a translation from, I can't remember exactly what languages it tracks through, but it goes from the, the Hebrew to the German to the English, at least. If not through either the Greek or the Latin as well. When we can just very easily, and we have this weird Christian cultural, at least in America, this weird like Jehovah thing too. And so I, just, I don't like Jehovah. And that's mainly a personal thing, if I'm being honest. It's, 
I don't know. It just, it kind of annoys me because it, it's like saying, and this annoys me to a lesser degree, right? But Jesus, if you go straight from the Hebrew or the Aramaic into English is Joshua. And I think we kind of miss some parallels being made between Jesus and Joshua, particularly in Matthew, when we don't understand that, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's also James and Jacob are the same name mm-hmm. in the Hebrew and Aramaic. And we translate them because of the languages we track through, they get translated differently in English. Part of that is also to make differentiations between biblical characters easier, right? But sometimes they're not meant to be easy. Some, and right? sometimes they're meant to be conflated. And I think that's an important thing too, right? Jesus and Joshua are supposed to be conflated literarily sometimes. And we miss that because we go from the Aramaic to the Greek, right? New Testament's in Greek. Um, Then we go from the Greek to the Latin or whatever, and then to the German and then to the English, right? And so we like pebble step across. Right. And most of the translations we deal with don't do that. But Jehovah here annoys me for that reason, right? Because one of the critiques that a lot of people can bring is you're going through so many different languages. It's like the telephone game. Yeah. No, this is not the telephone game. Any good translation is not the telephone game. And if it is any kind of telephone game, it's such a careful and meticulous and well-attested telephone game that the only times you get Jehovah from Yahweh is when you're being lazy. Yeah. Or when you're capital, let's say capitalizing on a capitalizing on a cultural preference. Yeah, exactly. Because this is, I mean, there's other ways in which this translation confines things but as far as the use of jehovah over god or yahweh is really the only only instance in which this translation doesn't at least try and draw from the original you know what i'm saying yeah and at least at least they're differentiating between god and yahweh right you got god you got jehovah Mm mm-hmm excuse me i like that right they did better than the message on that point right Mm -hmm. but they i think they they're utilizing that cultural import like you're talking about and then i really hate their rendering of verse five and you can even see in the length that it's not near as intense as the length of my verse five right that's my verse four that's my oh wow that's my verse five. And their verse five is super short. Love, uh, you must love him with all your heart, soul, and mind. It loses the repetitiveness, the repetition. It loses the ceremonial aspect of it, this like liturgical flair that it has. It loses, I mean, God's... Uh, the, the term God is used in the original or the, the name of God and the term God are used in the original. 
and it doesn't use either of those. It just refers to him with the pronoun. So I think there's a lot of weight that's lost. I think that, and again, you can make arguments differently. That's fine. But part of this exercise isn't just to show you that all of these textual things, they're stable, they're good, and we can make good arguments about them. But we also make arguments about them when we translate. Mm -hmm. And we can make well-informed arguments. We can make theologically, philosophically, ideological, um, and a whole host of other labels that you want to throw up there. Translations, motivated translations for um, one thing or another. And that's why I would always espouse someone if they can't read the Hebrew and you don't need to be able to read the Hebrew in order to be a good Christian, but read multiple translations to be a well-informed Christian and understand we're not playing the telephone game. The closest we can get is a very well articulated, very meticulous version. Right. And as we pointed out earlier, also know that the differences in translation are usually due to certain emphases that the, you brought this up earlier, usually the board or committee that's on the translation mm -hmm. deems as ultimate or of worthy. Yeah. Or, yeah. Priority. And so that's not to say it's a bad thing. That's not to say that it's, you know, all these men in a room just deciding what we're all going to read. There's yeah. people who care about the Bible, who want to follow the threads well, who want to understand what's being said, who want to then give it to whoever reads that translation. A con and it's more or less for consistency. Yeah. A consistent way in which to read and interact with the Bible. You get the same thing with John Golden Gay who to, and, and Wright, who have their own mm -hmm. individual translations because of other projects they did uh, of the Old and New Testament, respectively. And part of, and this is a decision on the translator, part of Golden Gay's vision when he did his translation, he calls it the First Testament of the when he did his translation of the Old Testament, one of the things he decided to do was keep all the Hebrew names of people and places, just transliterate them in English. Yeah. And even keep them, here we go about errors again, even keep them how they are said differently in certain passages or spelled differently yeah. from, from story to story. Okay, that doesn't, or, and something you talked about when you did Jonah, book for book and across the, can, across the Old Testament canon, if he could, he would choose a certain way to translate one word and then mm -hmm. keep it the same in every single instance. Yeah. Because part of the, but this is all a decision on things he's doing in translation. Yeah. Does this well, mean in, he, in, in time out there real quick, because I actually wanted to say something on that. I'm um, sorry to interrupt, but I think this is a really important point is because Shema has multiple meanings 
that we can render it in English, right? You, in just in the, the translations that we looked at and in mind, we had heed, we had attention, we had listen, and we had hear. It can also mean obey. And that's not one that came up, which is what I was trying to communicate with heed, right? Mm -hmm. Is all three of those at the same time. And I think it's actually a really good word to do all three of those personally. Um, if you think about it for long enough. Um, but sometimes a situation might legitimately call, it might be the same word in two different situations. And this situation might call for one word and this situation might call for another word. Mm -hmm. So making the commitment like I did with Jonah and like Golden Gay did to translate that word the same might make it harder to read and be an inauthentic representation of the meaning. Mm -hmm. But what it does is help demonstrate literary tropes and themes that are building. Exactly. So again, it's a different purpose bringing part of the meaning forward. The reason I think translations like that are important is because that's something that's usually neglected in English translations. And so I think it's good to have certain English translations that actually carry that forward. But mm -hmm. I don't think those need to be all of the English translations we have. Because there are other translations that need to prioritize, right? Weigh different priorities differently. You need to prioritize authentic definition of that word in this situation. Mm -hmm. Those are two different priorities right. that are both very important. And we can't have them both the same without learning Hebrew or Greek. It's just mm -hmm. impossible. So, sorry, didn't want to. No, no that was exactly that the pass. point. That's yeah. exactly the point I was going to end with is, well, Golden Gate is making a, a decision in doing so. Yeah. And what's the reason for his decision? Well, that you catch some of the literary things happening with certain words that are used throughout the book or the canon. That's, that's the point. Now, the downside of that is exactly what you said. There are certain ways in which that word is translated in passages that aren't going to make sense. But his, but his goal is that it should then, you as the reader, should intelligently say, oh, this word has happened in other places in this way. So knowing all of that, I can understand what's going on here. Same thing with the names, right? Um, and I've I've actually thought about um, and I and sorry it's not no. the same thing with the names the I think part of the a uh, phrase we've used here and a phrase is used in my church part of what he does with the names is to put us back in time and in a different place to defamiliarize how we anglicize look at that con the, that alliteration yeah, yeah. Uh, the Bible. No, it's, it's so good. Um, it's exactly what you were saying about Joshua. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly, that's exactly right. why. Yeah. Does it make it harder to read? Heck yeah. I can't pronounce some of them. I don't yeah. know what, like, <laughs> he's using different words for, Israel, for Egypt. Mm -hmm. And I had to sit there and think about it for a second. Like, oh, yeah, that's where this is. But I've never heard it referred to as this. Mitzrayim. So I had to actually Google it. Yeah. yeah you probably use Mitzrayim. Yeah. Yep. Um, so yeah, and I was actually at a uh, Bema group this week and we were talking about, 
we're going through the images of the desert, the last images of the desert episode, which is just a fantastic series in Bama. Uh, if you don't listen to anything else in Bama, I mean, there's a lot of good other stuff, but like, that's a good one. Um, and we were talking about the parable of like the image of Wadi, right? A Wadi in the desert is a canyon. And talking about Jesus' use of the image of Wadi when he tells the story of uh, the building of two houses, right? One on the sand and one on the rock. And we usually render, um, render it sand and rock in the translation. But Marty thinks and several others think that it's best rendered sand at the bottom of a wadi, right? Because as the floodwaters come through, it brings sand with it. And then the rock being the top of the cliff because it's rocky and, and hard. And the floodwaters come through a wadi you don't have floods come through other places, right? They come through wadis. That's how wadis are formed. And they don't hit the top of the wadi, right? Because again, that's how the wadi was formed as a canyon. And um, my friend asked, why is, why don't we just translate it cliff? Well, I said, eh, there are probably a couple of reasons. And I looked at the Greek and it's the word Petros. Yeah. which is also where we get Peter. Rock. Yeah. Rock. But three, they, get, they gave us three possible definitions for Petros. Rock, cliff, and something else. So you very easily could have translated it cliff, right? But I think probably one of the reasons that it's translated rock is because that's the traditional English way of translating this passage. I think because we get stuck on King James and the Tyndale translation, we oftentimes refer back to those as easy ways of translating these words because it does mean rock, right? And if you'll notice, it's also drawing allusions to when Jesus calls Peter mm -hmm. on this rock, I shall build my church, right? And so there might be some interplay there between those stories, literary things being done. So that's talking about translating the same word consistently, right? That's that mm -hmm. method we were just talking about. But what you miss is the wadi analogy that Jesus is drawing forward, right? He's drawing forward this idea of you're in the wrong place. It's not about foundation necessarily. It's about location. Do you build your house in the right place? In the bottom of a canyon where a flood is naturally going to come through and destroy it, or on the top of a cliff where the flood will just pass by. Because you would be a fool. You'd be a to fool. To build it where you know destruction is going to come. Exactly. That's the point of the exactly. phrase. Exactly. And so we If we you're miss smart, if you're wise, you build it where you know you're going to be safe. Yeah. And protected. And we miss that because we translate it rock and not cliff and sandy bottom of a canyon. Right? Yeah. But it's not a bad or inauthentic translation we just again prioritized one thing over another i haven't done a study to see if there's some kind of intertextual interplay between petros peter and rock that we build our house on or whatever right there might be there very well might be but again that's using the same example we were using earlier about different priorities but showing them how in translating in the priority that sometimes I would like, you miss some things that I also like, right? Yeah. Yeah. So anything else 
Do you, uh, I mean, I think we've been through. I might even split this up. Yeah, this, this, this is a long and very detailed, very good one. I'm thinking the Old Testament Mackey part Anheuser. and then splitting splitting it up into then the translation discussion, making okay. those two yeah. separate things. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I, they definitely connect, but... You want me to stop the recording? Or wait, you have the recording. I, uh, Where's my... There we go. I just want to summarize real quick. Wait, did you stop it? No. Okay. I'm going to summarize for the end here. Okay. And if you want to add something, you can. Cool. So in terms of what we've been talking about and then what's been talked about today and the attempts to be a good teacher, I want to summarize and and bring forth what I think is important. So we've been, as I said in the beginning, we've been discussing literature frames perception time and place how all of these things affect communication how there's no other way to communicate than to um, write and compile and organize in whatever form it takes and we have we seem to understand that reality at least in the world I grew up in, that reality was understood in almost every case except the Bible, at least implicitly. But as the question I beg this whole episode, if we expect God to truly communicate with us, why wouldn't it be the same? How could it be different? Otherwise, it wouldn't be communication. If there isn't a time and place in which he's trying to communicate, or... The greater sin, I think, is, oh, well, he was trying to communicate, and now we only fully understand now yeah. what he was actually saying. Again, back to Peugeot's. The arrogance. Yeah, back to Peugeot's, the, the scene underneath, the beyond that, the past that interpretation. If this is the reality of, of literature and communication – then the Bible is going to function in similar ways. There's going to be a time and place. There's going to be authors. There's going to be writers. And if we're going to confirm the sacred and the human element, and I don't even, I don't even like breaking them up, breaking those up, but the divine and human hands in the Bible, the, ins, the ways in which the Bible is inspired, it's important to know that there is a dynamic relationship going on here about God telling and leading the authors and the scribes and the compilers as they do what they do and making the Bible and then how the Bible comes into being. If we have a proper view of inspiration, if we have a proper view of the authority of the Bible, then that is going to give us freedom to understand how the Bible is made. And in understanding how the Old Testament is made, we're going to see very similar things and how the New Testament gets, gets compiled and gets written. And so with all of that, there are ways in which we can be true to that tradition and true to that act of communication and translating and wanting to communicate further with people in English and people in other languages about the truths that the Bible is speaking to. And that is a difficult task, one 
which, as you said earlier very well, why we have so many English translations because we have different priorities in different translations because certain things are said here for certain reasons and certain things are placed over here for certain reasons. And the fact that there's different texts that say different things at times about events and things in the Bible, that shouldn't scare us. We should be able to defend rightly and with reason why we would prefer in the case of Heiser and Deuteronomy, why we could prefer one translation over another for many reasons, be it theological, be it logical, or be it narrative. And as Wright will say, believe and trust that the Bible we have is the one that God intended. And then feel free to wrestle and to grapple and attempt to understand what is being communicated and let that not scare us, but truly believe that God continues to extend to us the same invitation that he extended to Jacob and that it is a righteous thing to wrestle with him and to wrestle and demand a blessing. Yeah, the only thing that I could add to that is um, I think one of the reasons we we get so worked up about this topic, culturally speaking, is because we have a very intense and in some ways, I believe, misguided soteriology, that is, theology of salvation. Mm-hmm. We... We think that, oh, if there are questions about what the words on the page are, then that can slippery slope fallacy down into my standing before God on judgment day mm-hmm. and God's pronouncement over me, sinner or saint, condemned or holy. And my, my response to that would be, do you have such a small image of God that God is not willing to overlook, that Jesus' blood does not cover the mistakes, right? Is that not the, the whole premise of our faith to begin with? Is that Jesus, like, in your purposeful and accidental errors in life, grace was extended to you because of Jesus. And so I think that that is important because we can so easily panic ourselves into despair because the way our faith is built, especially in the Protestant world, on this text. And so if there are questions with the text, then our faith is ruined. And my assertion is, my faith is not in the text. My faith is in the God the text points to. Don't make the Bible your God. The Bible is an amazing and holy book, in my conviction. But the Bible is not God. Let's put the Bible in its place and worship God in God's place.
that's that's the proper weighing of priorities and that's the proper christianity to your point about putting it in its place i think part of what motivates me so much is that i I'll try and say this right. Something, uh, I said this in the beginning, something that has continued to intrigue me is that much of the modern world and Christians and modern Christians have a posture of the Bible that is consumed with fear. Fear that they're going to question it too much or fear that fear of it because of how it was misused. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. And this is maybe where the liber- liberationists have a point. Yeah. Or I would say where they do have a point. I won't even be vague about it. Um I I said it in the beginning, I'll say it again to your point here and putting it in its proper place. I it's not that I want to make the Bible safe, because it's not safe. It's like the quote about Aslan. Yeah. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. God isn't safe. But he's good. But he's good. And I, 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 at least I've witnessed a lot of people scared to ask certain questions about the Bible or, or scared to investigate things, certain things in the Bible because of what it might say. And those are for Christians. And for non-Christians, I think it's a, a fear of the Bible, either out of ignorance or, again, out of misuse. And it's not necessarily fear, but I think at some level it is. And it's a re- because of that, there's a rejection. And I, I don't like seeing that. And I want... Even saying making the Bible approachable isn't, isn't the phrase I want. Um, I just don't... I don't want people to be scared of it. I want it to be a I'll I'll say it like this. And this is this is funny. The more I've studied Jesus, the more confusing he's become. And I think that's on purpose. Uh, there's a great, it's an old sermon. There's a, a great Francis Chan sermon and it's literally titled, If Jesus Ran Your Church, You Wouldn't Go. And it it seems to me that Jesus kept going around and he'd say very strange things and then he'd come back and he'd be like, well, yeah, everybody left, uh, you know, John 6. Don't you want to leave too? Yeah. 
and it's not that I'm that Jesus scares me, but because he's become so much more odd to me in a good way, it's intriguing. Yeah. That's what I was. And I think that's that's what I that's what I've experienced with the Bible. And that's what I want for other people. I I want it to truly be intriguing. And there's so many things. I mean, I just wrote a paper on Jesus and the fig tree in, in Mark 11. There's, I still don't understand that whole passage. I still don't get it. I have certain better ideas now, maybe about what's going on, about some of the illusions Jesus is making. It's so, it's, it's part of why I picked it. It's like, it's so weird. I don't get it. Yeah. And so I think when we put the Bible in its proper place, we say, especially now, because we're so far removed from its originality, originality in the sense of its origin, its genesis, that it should be odd and confusing and strange and ambiguous but those things shouldn't scare us because as Ben S said last week, we also have, as Tim is also alluding to, we have more resources now to help fully understand that world than we've ever had in the past. So I guess my encouragement and what you've said is yes, please put it in its right place and see it as something that, attest to God's work in the world and who he is, but it is not God. And again, even if it was, what does Jacob do with God? What is Israel? Those who wrestle with God. So, yeah, it shouldn't shouldn't scare us i find the bible utterly captivating i find jesus utterly captivating and i chose that word specifically it's captured me and i even argue forcefully but not in a bad or coercive or manipulative way it's captured me because it's so intriguing and i cannot let go of it. I can't. And so what I want to do, what we want to do, is to recapture the Christian imagination. Allow us to wrestle with the text and with God. God's not afraid of us and God's not afraid of our questions. And I don't want to deconstruct to the point of doubting everything because I think that does drive you off the edge of the cliff. But I want us to be willing to come to God earnestly and say, hey, I don't get this. 
explain it to me. The rabbis talk about when you come to something in the text that you don't understand, you celebrate, you don't mourn, you celebrate because one day God will illuminate that to you and that will be a day worth celebrating. That day might not be today, but you found your food for tomorrow. That's beautiful. All right, that's all I got. Me too. Thank you.